Welcome to another episode of Creation Talk. My name is Paul Price. And I'm Keaton Halley. So, Keaton, this is an interesting topic for today, talking about polystrate fossils. Now, uh, this is something I think we've both spent some time uh, in the ministry. Uh, We've spent some time learning about this, and obviously this is one of the biggest arguments in creation versus evolution going back, uh, you know, to the beginning of the whole modern-day creation movement. It's always been a big topic that uh, creation scientists like to talk about. Just for the audience, what is a polystrate fossil? It's basically a term, it's not all that present in the mainstream literature, but um, it refers to a fossil that extends upright through multiple layers of strata, right? So poly, many, and straight strata. So it's a fossil that that, uh, runs through different layers. The reason it's relevant to the authority of Genesis is because Genesis teaches God made everything in six days in the recent past, says there was a global flood in the time of Noah. And so, of course, that has implications for geology, that those rock layers and fossils can't be millions of years old. Uh, Rather, they were laid down rapidly, by and large, during Noah's flood. And so polystrate fossils are a good way of saying, uh, if a tree, for example, extends through multiple layers, how could it have uh, sat there while thousands of years are allegedly taking place, slowly burying it inch by inch, wouldn't the top rot and fall away? Right. And so forth. So it's an argument in favor of a young earth as opposed to millions of years. Exactly. And uh, the secularists and the mainstream scientists prefer to just call them upright fossils, which I I think does describe their orientation for the most part. Although, you know, I I don't believe it's true that all polystrate fossils are literally uh, straight up and down upright. Yeah, it's not really as clear or specific of a term. You know, I, I know you, you've you written in your one of your articles on our website that we'll link to that um, Wikipedia said this is basically a creationist term, <laughs> polystrate fossils. That's what Wikipedia claims. Yeah, it's a creationist term. But if that's so, then I think we should gladly take credit for it because yeah, exactly. it's a great term. It, it's more accurate to describe what's actually happening as opposed to just saying that it's upright, which is which is vague. They often charge creationists with not doing real science, but here's the case then. If it is our term, then it's a it's a genuine contribution to science. You know, it's something that we should, yeah, take pride in, I think. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and this is just one of many examples of what we always like to call historical science. And that's yet another uh, term that the secularists claim, or many of them, Uh, try to claim that it's exclusively a creationist term. I've written in the Journal of Creation on this topic, and I've actually shown, and other creationists have also shown, that that's not the case, uh, that it's uh, the term historical science is used broadly in textbooks and going back into scientific literature. You know, it's properly understood to be the difference between uh, what we call operational science, which is science where you can do a repeatable experiment. And the purpose of that experiment is obviously to show us the ongoing processes of nature. And that's a very different thing compared to trying to piece together specific events in the past, which are not repeatable. Uh, A frequent analogy given to that is crime scene investigation. You know, forensics, you're taking clues and you're trying to come up with the best possible explanation for those clues. And that is that is called abductive reasoning, uh, inference to the best explanation. 
That's what we're doing in historical science, and that's a very different thing compared to uh, operational science where we're trying to repeat experiments and use inductive reasoning to come up with the ongoing processes of nature. Yeah, and I think the the point of the differentiation you're making, too, is that operational science, the kind of science we do in the present, it's easier to trust scientists when they make claims there as an authority that, you know, their worldview isn't going to impact how they understand how gravity works, how electricity works, because that's something everybody can see happening right now and we can repeat it. Uh, But whereas when they make claims about how polystrate fossils formed, uh, that's historical science. We weren't there to observe it. And so there could be different interpretations depending on your starting point about how that came to be. Was it rapidly deposited or slowly and gradually. That's what makes historical science fundamentally less trustworthy. And I and I even co-authored an, ar- an article recently with uh, Dr. Robert Carter, where we argued that basically the further back you try to go with historical science, the greater your degree of uh, uncertainty has to be, all other things equal, because there are just uh, so many things that we don't know about the unrepeatable past. Yeah, certainly if you're if you're extrapolating and so forth. Exactly, yeah. So, with that said, what are some of the examples we have? Um, I know you've done some research into the polystrate trees that we find uh, in Yellowstone. You want to talk a little bit about that example? Yeah, oftentimes with polystrate fossils, it's something like a tree where you can have an elongated object that can extend through multiple layers. You know, Yellowstone in Wyoming, there's a, a petrified forest. I actually got to go there on a road trip back in 2009. Uh, I hiked up what's called Specimen Ridge. There's also a nearby hillside called Specimen Creek. And at these hillsides, basically, you can see there, there's a modern forest growing with relatively thin trees. Popping up out of the ground are also these um, tree, almost like tree stumps, or it's mainly just the trunks of the trees. Large, you know, sequoias and other types of trees that are turned to stone, they're petrified. The evolutionary view is that this isn't a whole succession of ancient forests that grew in place were buried by volcanic ash. And then over time, it took hundreds of years for that ash to weather into a new soil and for new trees to grow and develop ancient rings, you know, for like 500 years worth. Some of these trees are 500 years old or more. And so the next forest would grow on top and so forth. And so you get all these levels, they say, over millions of years because it's a succession of forests that got buried and petrified. But the problem with, there are many problems with that. One of them is some of the trees are polystrate. They extend up into the next forest. And wouldn't they have uh, decayed in the hundreds of years or thousands of years it took for this new forest to develop? So overall, they claim you know this whole succession took like as much as 40,000 years. This is why like some people have lost their faith over this very issue. There's a guy, um, a well-known historian of science, Ronald Numbers, who wrote a book on the modern creationist movement called The Creationists. And he's, he's really a good historian by and large, although he tries to trace our movement to some um, idiosyncratic Seventh-day Adventist views of a, a prophetess <laughs> named Ellen White. And that's actually not accurate. Historically, yeah. the biblical creationist view goes way back further in, into history. Goes back to Jesus, actually. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and before and, that, and, to Moses. And Moses. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. But in the introduction to his book here, he actually gives a bit of his own story and says that he was raised as a Seventh-day Adventist and taught 
young earth flood geology, taught to believe the Bible by his parents and his church. But he, he walked away after encountering Yellowstone. Here's what he says. In fact, I do not recall ever doubting the recent appearance of life on earth until the late 1960s while studying the history of science at the University of California at Berkeley. I vividly remember the evening I attended an illustrated lecture on the famous sequence of fossil forests in Yellowstone National Park, and then stayed up much of the night with a biologist friend, first agonizing over, then accepting the disturbing likelihood that the Earth was at least 30,000 years old. Having thus decided to follow science rather than scripture on the subject of origins, I quickly, though not painlessly, slid down the proverbial slippery slope toward unbelief. And so how many people have encountered evolutionary claims, old earth claims like these, and said, yeah, you know what, the Bible just gets it wrong in these areas? Yeah. But there's a good flood explanation for Yellowstone. In fact, Mount St. Helens is a good analog for it. Do you want to tell us maybe a little bit about that since I've been talking for a while? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, obviously there's so many good resources from uh, creation.com and from our books. Mount St. Helens is is a great, I guess, natural experiment in rapid sedimentation, rapid the, the rapid formation of strata that look just like the kind of strata that we see many other places like Grand Canyon. After the uh, mountain erupted, you had huge mudslides and, and flows of lava and deposition of ash. These events created, along with the erosion that happened rapidly right after that, they created things like What's it called? Uh, the Little Grand Canyon? Is that what it's called there? Yeah, that's one of the, it's a whole canyon system, and that's, that was a, a part of it. Yeah, it's like a 140th scale canyon uh, compared to the Grand Canyon. Yeah, yeah. So that's a good topic to look into. But with, with Yellowstone in particular, um, what I was thinking of is it, it also knocked down the nearby forest. Um, right. And right. millions of these trees ended up getting dumped into the nearby Spirit Lake where they floated around, formed a log mat on the water there. And in fact, they're still there to this day, many of them. Over time, because the root end of the tree is heavier and, and the roots are designed to soak up water, the, the root end would sink down into the water and the, the tree would float upright in the water. Right, right. And then it would sink, eventually sink to the bottom of the sea floor and get stuck there in the mud. And if you look under Spirit Lake right now, it's like a forest growing underwater there, but it, it didn't actually grow in place. Yeah. It was a catastrophe that ripped up all these trees, transported them, and then they sank down in the upright position. Exactly. If the lake is drained later, it would look like a forest that grew there. And this is the sort of thing that could have happened at, at Yellowstone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, let me just take a quick pause in the action here to tell uh, you, the viewership, if you're enjoying this content, please don't forget to click on the subscribe button so that you'll be uh, notified of all of our new content when it comes out. Make sure you click all notifications there. Obviously, it helps us out if you share this uh, information with uh, everybody that you know that might be interested. Not only does it help us out as a ministry and as a channel, uh, but it will obviously help them as well. There's a lot of uh, people out there that need to know this important information. Just one more point, too, if I might, on the Yellowstone things, Paul, as well. Yeah. Mount St. Helens actually has impacted even the way the conventional secular geologists view that. And to some extent now they've revised their ideas saying that some of the trees could have been transported in. They still try to claim that it was over tens of thousands of years that it took for all these trees to be buried. But the, the evidence really strongly supports the flood model. And there's lots more evidence if you look up a web article on creation.com on the Yellowstone petrified forests. And that's a perfect example. What you just said there 
they have witnessed something and then they've had to modify their views on the story that they tell on how to interpret other similar things. And that's just an example of why, you know, we need eyewitness testimony when we look at the past. We need an we need a, a viewpoint of someone who witnessed it. If we don't have that, then all we have are guesses, and those guesses could be wildly off and we would never know the difference. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's just a perfect example of that. Another a good example. Sorry, Keaton, did you have something? No, I was just going to say, yeah, let's talk about some other examples as well. Maybe you could talk about uh, Joggins, Nova Scotia. You've written an article on that. Yes, yes, I I did write an article on Joggins. And uh, I want to give credit where credit is due because the main uh, source of the info that I had is the, the well-known creation researcher, um, Ian Juby, who actually went out and did the field work, yeah. uh, actually went to... Uh, these cliffs and and investigated them. So I appreciate the great work that he did there and is continuing to do in creation science. And uh, particularly, he wrote a chapter in a book that we have uh, in our web store, which is called Rock Solid Answers. He wrote a chapter in that book specifically dealing with Joggins. So I would highly encourage everybody who wants to delve deep into these topics of uh, creation geology um, I would highly encourage them to check out that book, Rock Solid Answers. And, and tell us a bit about Joggins, like what we find there. It's basically, you know, you have similar to Yellowstone. It's not trees that are buried there, but these other tree-like fossils, right? Yes, they're called lycopods, and they're actually an extinct relative of the reeds, the, the reeds that we have alive today but they're many, many times larger. Mm-hmm. So they're like tree-sized, even though they're hollow. They're not like a, an actual tree. They're, they're reeds. Exactly. They're hollow in, in the middle, which makes, which makes for an interesting thought experiment. There's a lot of creationists that have some interesting ideas about uh, the, the ancient pre-flood world, what, what these giant hollow lycopod tree-like things might have been and how they might have lived. Uh, I encourage interested people to look into that. There's the the theory of the giant floating forests that is promoted by some creationists. We obviously can't yeah. know for sure if that's true or not, but it's an interesting idea. Kind of a controversial su- subject. There's you know, debates on both sides of that within the creationist community. So yeah, people can look up floating forest model on creation.com. Floating forest model. And that's what these lycopods, when they talk about floating forests, that's what they're talking about, these lycopods that are huge but hollow. We do find them at Joggins. Many of them are upright. In fact, maybe all of them that we have preserved there are upright. And they're not only are they upright, they're going through multiple layers, multiple laminations of strata, and it creates a problem for the old age interpretation of the Joggins formation, which is uh, that they view it as a successive series of many cycles over many, many, many years where there was like a, a floodplain and a river might have uh, flooded and gone over its banks and brought some sediment to these lycopods and partially buried them successively. So, you know, similar to other examples, that's what they try to appeal to. They they have to try to appeal to, rather than one large global flood, uh, they try to appeal to, you know, a successive series of local floods. So as a critical thinking person as a detective, we need to look back and look at the overall scope of the evidence. What is the best explanation for what we see? In Joggins, 
Uh, there's a lot of amazingly interesting evidence that we see there uh, that Ian Juby particularly has taken photos of. You can see them again at creation.com slash Joggins. For example, some of these trunks were actually, we have impressions of them in the rock showing that they are upside down. So that's a problem for the secular explanation here. Uh, how do you get these giant things buried upright yet upside down? Yeah, if it grew in place, yeah, it's not going to grow upside down. It must, yeah. it must have been transported at least that one, you know? Exactly. They're arguing that these are in place, but that's not what the evidence shows. If some of them are upside down, they're definitely not in place. They're not where they grew. Uh, Ian Juby took photos of one example of the, the lycopods where you've got one uh, impression going this way and another one upside down directly beneath it. So that proves that they're not uh, growing in situ on, a, on one soil horizon like the secularists claim. Uh, another example is how we see where their roots are actually curving upward above where the supposed soil horizon was. You can see that the roots, the roots are curved like they were suspended in water or mud. Another interesting fact there is that you also have trees, but the trees are laying flat. We don't really know why that is, but the trees are laying flat and the lycopods are mm -hmm. upright. And I, I suspect it might have something to do with the way that the lycopods are hollow and how that might affect how they would float around in this muddy sediment. But the the trees are actually crushed down to half of their original thickness by the, the sheer pressure of all the sediment that was on top of them. So that does not really comport with the idea of cyclical local floods. Yeah, that, that would have to accumulate really fast and get heavy before the lycopod had become fossilized in order to crush it. It hadn't yet turned to stone, right? And so that, that's evidence for a rapid deposition. Right, rapid the tree, de you deposition. mean. Oh, it was the trees that were, that were crushed. Yeah, the trees are the ones that are crushed. The lycopods are upright, but the trees are on their side flattened. Yeah, okay. So how, how do the secularists try to get around this problem? There's, a, there's lots of different places on the internet, obviously, where you can find uh, supposed debunking videos and things where they claim that uh, these that this evidence doesn't show what the creationists say that it shows. Uh, one I saw on YouTube was uh, how creationism taught me real science, polystrate trees, and he makes a couple of interesting claims. He he claims number one, we creationists say that the polystrate fossils go through multiple layers when in reality they're all just one layer. And he shows a photo, or uh, sorry, not a photo. He shows a drawing where he shows what we think, and it shows the, the polystrate fossil going through multiple layers, and then what the reality is, and it claims that it's all just stuck in one big layer. I think that's pretty easy to refute, though. That's just simply not the case. Yeah, there's a, there's a very clear example, um, a strong one from Tennessee. There was a tree where the roots are in a coal seam. The traditional idea in the evolutionary community is that coal forms in swamps from peat, but then the upper part of the, the trunk is in within shale, which was deposited in a marine environment. So you have this radical transition between the swamp environment and the marine environment. That was is going to take a lot of time, and that's clearly different strata that the tree is spanning. And then the other thing that, that this guy claims is, well, e even if we do have that, even if we do have multiple layers, then that still doesn't prove anything with creationism, because what could have happened is that the whole tree was buried upright, the whole tree fossilized, and then it was 
unburied partially and then more strata get you know slowly built up around that fossil sure yeah that's kind of uh, you know the other i would call it a rescuing device or a just so story that that's the problem with historical science is that if you don't want to arrive at a particular conclusion you can always come up with plausible sounding stories to give an alternate view Perhaps, yeah. Although it's such a complex theory, you would think there would be some evidence to help support that, like, you know, eroding away and then redepositing new material on top and the disturbing of the sediments and so forth. So Exactly. I mean, what does the overall picture best represent? And I think that's what we we need to kind of wind up with here today is to impress on people that no one particular piece of evidence is going to be good enough to clinch the case in favor of one view or another. You have to look at the overall scope of the evidence and make a a good reasoned conclusion based on that. And I think when you look at all the evidence that, for example, Joggins, you've got the the crushed trees, you've got the inverted stumps, you've got the the roots growing upward, all all of those pieces of evidence, they definitely don't fit these uh, alternate stories that the secularists try to come up with. Yeah, that's exactly right. And people can read our articles if they want all the evidence that with polystrate fossils as one factor that helps to support the the global flood conclusion. Absolutely. Well, thanks for your time, Keaton. It's been a fun talk. Yeah. We've hit some good highlights here, so appreciate your time again. Yeah, very good. And uh, we'll see you next time. 